Welcome to the SSPX Podcast, delivering sermons, lectures, and the spoken word from across the English-speaking world. Today we are pleased to present the entire lecture given by Father Kilcally at the recent Angelus Press Conference for Catholic Tradition in Kansas City, Missouri, this past October 2019. His talk is entitled, The Dangers Lurking Online. As was made clear at the conference itself, this topic is intended for an adult audience since it deals with the problems of impurity found online. If you would like to hear more of the lectures from the recent Angelus Press Conference, you're welcome to sign up for more information at angeluspress.org slash 2019. All of the conferences will be made available very soon, and you can sign up for information and updates about the conference audio. And as always, you can find archives of all of our podcasts at sspxpodcast.com. You can find archives, how to subscribe, and how to support this podcast endeavor at sspxpodcast.com. With that said, here is the lecture from Father Kilcally, The Dangers Lurking Online, from the Angelus Press Conference for Catholic Tradition. Our next speaker, Father Sean Kilcally, is the director of the Office of Family Life for the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. He's an internationally recognized specialist on Catholic anthropology with an expertise on the problem of pornography. For years, he has relentlessly worked to educate clergy and parents on the dangers and harms of pornography and the path to healing for individuals, spouses, and families in the midst of our hypersexualized culture. Due to the delicacy of the topic, I would like to tell everyone that this talk is intended for adults and the older students of our schools here present. It is my honor to introduce Father Kilcally. Thank you. I'm just going to begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space and ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us to bind us to our Lord Jesus Christ, that every thought, word, and work of ours may begin with you and through you be happily completed through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. All right. It is a great joy to be with you all uh, today. And um, I want to especially thank Jim and Father Wegner for the invitation. Um, as Jim said, my name is Father Sean Kilcally. I'm the Family Life Office Director in the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, and for about the last five years, I've focused almost all of my time and energy on this problem of pornography. And because as a family life office director, I'm in charge of marriage and family ministry, marriage preparation, um, working with people who have had crises within their marriages, um, this problem of pornography always seems to pop up. And um, so I'll tell you a little bit about myself because coming in from the outside, you don't know anything about me. Um, so the family I grew up in this morning, I was really moved by Father Scar's talk on roots. And uh, so the family I grew up in, um, my father's an Irish immigrant. He grew up in this little town in the west coast of Ireland called Enniscrone. Uh, when he was 19, he got married, had two daughters and a son. My sister Donna was born in England and then raised by her Italian grandmother in Ireland. And now she's married to an Italian who runs an Irish pub in Rome. Uh, my sister Jacqueline was born in Ireland, and then my brother Mark was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So my father moved to the United States when he was about 22, um, kind of to start over again. And then when Mark was about two years old, my father abandoned that family, um, divorced his wife, never really had relationships with any of those children, 
and ended up living in Michigan. So my mother grew up in Michigan, and when she was young, she fell in love and got married, had two sons, my brothers James and John. And when John was about four years old, they also got divorced. So dad made it to Michigan, met my mom. Yes, I was born. And then two weeks short of my second birthday, my mother died of cervical cancer. So within about a year, my dad married my stepmom, and they had two daughters and a son. My sister Sarah, my sister Katie, and my brother Kevin. And when I was a sophomore in college, they also got divorced. So that's how I became the family life office director, <laughs> right? But it's the family that I grew up in. It's the family our Lord called me out of. It's the family I learned to pray in. And I would pray Psalm 139 before I knew about Psalm 139, which says, Lord, I praise you for the wonder of my being. I praise you for I'm wonderfully made. Because I would marvel at the fact that God had to take my dad across an ocean through all these circumstances and craziness to get him to my mom and put their DNA together and make me just in time before my mom died. So if our Lord went through all that trouble to make me, he must have had a reason. And so my prayer life from the time I was young was this sort of sense of wonder at the fact that I exist, right? This wonder at the fact that I exist. And, and that led me to you know, this long road of discerning priesthood. A um, Couple of other things, when I graduated high school, I went to military academy at West Point. So I graduated there in 1996, served three years as an active duty infantry officer. Uh, I was in the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell. And um, then about 1999, I left the military and entered priestly formation. Um, and so, so the reason that I started talking about all of this, I went to grad school between 2009 and 2013. And when I got back in 2013, I was reworking some of our chastity curriculum for our schools in the Diocese of Lincoln. And at the time, what we were doing was uh, we were teaching Humana Vitae to ninth graders, which is a good thing. Um, but the way it was being taught was mostly an apologetic against contraception. And our ninth graders don't even know what it means to have a relationship yet. And so I sort of switched that up. And like most people, when they get back from graduate school, I thought my graduate school education is going to change the world. Um, but it was, it was very shortly after finishing that project that I realized that I'm trying to teach the church's teaching about marriage, love, and human sexuality to a whole bunch of young people that have grown up with access to pornography. And we have to stop sinning in order to grow in the spiritual life. And so I switched to talking to parents about protecting their children from pornography. And that led to a lot of couples coming in to see me because they had a problem with pornography in their marriages. And then I realized I needed more training and I needed to find more resources. And, and so I put myself through a certification program in sexual addiction treatment. And, um, and I've worked with lots of people from all facets of the church and, um, and have become really convinced that the statistics about pornography are true, and they're really true for just about everybody. Um, and some of those are these, that in the United States, we account for about $13 billion of the $97 billion made worldwide each year by the pornography industry. So the pornography industry is very powerful. They have lots of money, and that's why you can find pornography very easily on the internet. 
High pornography users are found to score higher on things like acceptance of the rape myth, acceptance of violence against women, adversarial sex beliefs, reported likelihood of committing rape and for sex acts and sexual callousness. So, so higher pornography users are more likely to violate people's sexual boundaries, right? They're more likely to enter into promiscuous relationships. According to the National Survey of Family Growth, 21% of men and 8% of women have 15 or more sexual partners in their lifetime. The American Association of Matrimonial Lawyers says that one in four American marriages will end due to online pornography use or some other form of cybersexual behavior. So that statistic means one out of four couples who comes in to see me because they're having communications issues or anything else going on in their marriage probably also has a pornography problem. Right? And it's, it's something to be aware of. And so what do we do with all of that? That means there's a lot of wounded people out there. And St. Francis de Sales has this quote in Introduction to the Devout Life. He says, when fruits are whole, you may store them up securely, some in straw, some in sand, or amid their own foliage. But once bruised, there is no means of preserving them save with sugar or honey. Even so, the purity which has never been tampered with may well be preserved to the end. But when once that has ceased to exist, nothing can ensure its existence but the genuine devotion, which as I have often said, is the very honey and sugar of the mind. Right? And so he uses this, this analogy of fruit, that when fruits are whole, they can be preserved by these normal means. But once bruised, you have to put them in sugar and honey. And the same thing applies to our purity. And so purity that's never been tampered with, it can be preserved to the end. But once it's been lost, it can only be preserved by the genuine devotion. Right? He doesn't say it can only be preserved by better discipline. He doesn't say it can only be preserved by internet filters. He doesn't say it can only be preserved by going to therapy. He says it can only be preserved by the genuine devotion, which means a complete surrender of our hearts to our Lord. So in the first chapter of Introduction to the Devout Life, he talks about genuine devotion. While there are undoubtedly is such a true devotion, there are also many spurious and idle semblances thereof, and unless you know which is real, you may mistake and waste your energy in pursuing an empty, profitless shadow. One man sets great value on fasting and believes himself to be leading a very devout life. So long as he fasts rigorously, although the while his heart is full of bitterness, and while he will not moisten his lips with wine, perhaps not even with water, in his great abstinence he does not scruple to steep them in his neighbor's blood through slander and detraction. Another man reckons himself as devout because he repeats many prayers daily, although at the same time he does not refrain from all matter of angry, irritating, conceited, or insulting speeches among his family and neighbors. This man freely opens his purse in almsgiving, but closes his heart to all the gentle and forgiving feelings toward those who are opposed to him. While that one is ready enough to forgive his enemies, but will never pay his rightful debts to save under pressure. Meanwhile, all these people are conveniently called religious, but nonetheless, they are in no true sense really devout. And so, so this quote has a lot of power for me because when I'm working with people who come in to see me, they often will come in and, and they have this problem with 
pornography and masturbation, and they'll say, well, Father, you know, I'm just coming in on the outside chance that you might have something that will help me. I'm already doing a 54-day rosary novena, and I'm already doing a novena to St. Joseph, and I'm in the Angelic Warfare Society, and I'm doing all these things, and do you have another novena? <laughs> like, there's not another novena, but they're surrendering your heart. No, they're surrendering your heart. And, and the path to freedom is about surrendering our heart. All the interventions I'm gonna talk about are there to help us to surrender our heart. In fact, all true and living devotion presupposes the love of God. And indeed, it is neither more nor less than a very real love of God, though not always of the same kind. For that love, one will, sh one will sh while shining on the soul, we call grace, which makes us acceptable to his divine majesty when it strengthens us to do his will. It is called charity. But when it attains its fullest perfection, in which it not only leads us to do well, but to act carefully, diligently, and promptly, then it is called devotion. Right? Then it is called devotion. And so, so this path to healing is going to be, it's about letting our Lord transform our lives. So all sexual sin is a distortion of love. Right? It's, it's all a distortion of love. And, Pope Benedict XVI, as Joseph Ratzinger, wrote an article called Truth and Freedom, where he talks about the image of God. And when he talks about the image of God, he talks about an order of love. And so he says, the real God is by his very nature entirely being for, being from, and being with. And so the first movement of love in the Trinity is fatherhood, it's active love, it's self-giving love, it's sacrificial love, it's, it's this complete outpouring of oneself. In traditional language, we'd say that means I want the good for you, right? That's the way that we talk about love. The second movement of love is the love of the son for the father. And remember in St. Thomas, he says the persons in the Trinity are distinct by their relation. And the distinction's an absolute distinction. And so the love of the son for the father, we have to have different words that we put on that to describe what that means. And the words I'm choosing were also from Pope Benedict, to entrust myself completely to this person who loves me. Right? If I know that somebody wants the good for me, then my response to that is going to be to entrust myself to them, to place my heart in their hands, to let them guide me in all things, to surrender myself to them, to be obedient to them. Right? And that's what it means to be a son or a daughter. And then the Holy Spirit is sort of the bond of love between them, or St. Augustine says the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. And so again, the real God is by his very nature entirely being for, being from, and being with. He says man for his part is God's image, precisely insofar as the from, with, and for constitute the fundamental anthropological pattern. So there's a pattern of love in our lives that starts with being from another, being a son or a daughter. Then we learn to be with another in our sibling relationships, in our friendships. One of those friendships eventually transforms into a marriage. And with the gift of children, a mother and a father become being for their children. And the pattern matters. So he goes on to say, whenever we attempt to free ourselves from the pattern, we're not on our way to divinity, but to dehumanization, to the destruction of being itself through the destruction of the truth. So how would I free myself from the pattern? Like if my ministry, my being for, is more important to me than my being from, my prayer life, I'm freeing myself from the pattern. 
if I'm more, if I care more about my productivity, my administrative skills, the things I do, than surrendering my life to our Lord, I'm freeing myself from the pattern. If I find my identity in what I do, or in our current culture, if I find my identity in who I'm attracted to or who I'm aroused by my being with, instead of where I'm from, it's freeing myself from the pattern. And I bring this up because when people have addictions, we oftentimes think that the problem is, is that they don't know how to love others. But in my experience, the problem is they don't know how to entrust themselves to anyone. That they don't know how to be loved. And the people that I work with, their biggest struggle is they don't know how to be loved. They don't know how to allow God to love them. And even their experience of the sacramental life becomes an experience of, I need to do these, all these things instead of something that's been moved by our Lord. And so when we talk about the problem of pornography, there's, we can talk about causes and effects. So the effects of sexual sin, sexual sin prevents us from the vision of God. Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God, and he means it. Right? If somebody asks me, why do you spend your time talking about pornography? It's not because I like talking about pornography but it's because I care a lot about whether or not people can see God. And the impure of heart cannot see God. And that is something that's real and it's concrete in our own lives. You know, there was a man who came in and saw me because he had had some problems at work. And after a few questions, it came out that, yes, he in fact had a problem with pornography. And he had, he had described this as, well, well, I don't really have any problems. I just like, have problems with people. Like, I have, I have trouble seeing things from other people's point of view. I don't really get other people's feelings. I'm kind of all about the mission. Sometimes I hurt people's feelings, but I don't really realize it. And I said, oh, well, I don't know much, but I work with a lot of people who struggle with sexual sin. And one of the side effects of that is a lack of empathy, and you sort of don't see things from other people's point of view, and you become really selfish, and your emotional range goes from numb to frustrated all the time. And you might hurt people's feelings without really realizing it. Oh, really? Well, maybe I do that sometimes. And so I grabbed a book off my shelf called Treating Pornography Addiction that I give to a lot of people, and I gave him the name of a counselor, and he started seeing his priest for spiritual direction. And I said, let's do an experiment and get this out of your life and see what happens. So two months later, he comes in. Father, thank you so much for the name of that therapist. It's, things are going really well. My wife's starting to come in with me. Our marriage is getting better. But the weirdest thing is I was in the car with my son the other day, and he just kind of randomly looked over at me and said, I like the new dad. Could you imagine? I like the new dad. He looks down, what? Well, I like the old dad. <laughs> I just really like the new dad. And so what happened, his affectivity came back online. He became more free to enter into his son's world. He became more free to love his son. And his son started to experience the love of God through the love of his earthly father. And blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And more of the effects of lust or the daughters of lust is given to us by St. Thomas, blindness of mind, thoughtlessness, inconstancy, rashness, self-love, hatred of God, love of this world, abhorrence or despair of a future world. 
Right? And so those are all the effects. <clears throat> and the causes are really complicated in most cases. So in summary, we can derive the general cause from the cure. If the cure is the genuine devotion, then the cause can be a privation of love, or a resistance to love, or a negligence of love. And when we look at sexual addiction treatment models, like there are lots of different causes that we can see. And if we're really interested in prevention and protecting our young people, that model can show us kind of the things that we need to do. Now, some people will ask this question, when did sin become an addiction? Like, why are we calling it addiction? And you can call it whatever you want to call it. Like, one of my responses is, when did we talk stop talking about being a slave to sin? Or sometimes I might say, well, when did we become complacent about slavery to sin? You know, if somebody has been stuck in a particular sin for 20 years, they're a slave to sin. And we cannot serve God and mammon. So sometimes people will say this, and these are really faithful people. They'll say something like, you know, my husband is such a holy Catholic man who's addicted to porn. Okay, so you can't be a holy Catholic man and be addicted to porn. You can be a good man who's really trying and whose heart is in the right place, but you're just stuck because you're a slave to sin. But holiness involves being free. And so if somebody can't stop a behavior that's harming themselves and others, then he's a slave to that behavior. And clinicians call that addiction. Now, clinicians will identify 10 criteria for addiction. And so if somebody's going to be diagnosed with an addiction, um, they basically ask them a bunch of questions. And if you have three out of these 10, you might have an addiction. Right? So loss of control, I do more this, of this than I want to. It's a compulsive behavior. So there's a pattern of this behavior over time. Uh, there's repeated efforts to stop, which fail. Right? So, so one of the things in 12-step recovery groups they do is you have to make a list of all the times that you tried to stop but failed. Like write down every single time you said you were never going to do this again, and you did it again. And it helps us to see, OK, there's something more. I need some more help here. Uh, loss of time, preoccupation, inability to fulfill obligations, continuing despite consequences. Like if I work with somebody and they were disciplined because they looked at pornography at work and then they're looking at pornography again. In alcoholism, if somebody gets a DUI and then they continue to drink and drive afterwards. Right. Um, losses and escalation is when I'm doing something more risky or I'm looking at something more violent over time, right, which is really common and withdrawal symptoms. So three out of those 10, somebody might have an addiction. Patrick Carnes has been the leading sexual addiction treatment therapist in the country. Um, and he has this model, and this model is based on a study he did with like over 1,000 addicts. Um, and so the model starts with family. So 87% of addicts have other addicts in their families. 77% come from a rigid family system where there's like really rigid rules and rules. 87% um, from a disengaged family system where there's kind of a lack of relationship where somebody might not really feel known within their family. And both a rigid and disengaged system, 68%. Now sometimes when I talk to people and I say, 
Like, what was your family like? They'll say, my family is amazing. I don't know what's wrong with me because I don't have any of that stuff. And so did you feel like you could talk to your parents about anything? Well, of course, Father. When did you talk to your parents about the fact that you struggled with pornography? Oh, I can't talk to them about that. Right? And so sometimes everything, everything's good except for this area of sexuality. And there's just not an ability to go to get help in that area. Then there's this factor of abuse or early trauma. 97% of addicts have emotional abuse, 81% sexual abuse, and 72% physical abuse. And so a lot of times people will also say, well, I don't have any abuse in my history. But if the average age of exposure to pornography is between 8 and 11 years old currently, which it is, if an 11-year-old is exposed to pornography, and when I say that, I mean like, like hardcore pornography. I don't mean like lingerie ads or something like that. That's abuse. Right? And they're going to experience it as abuse because they're seeing something they're not ready for and they don't know what to do with the information. Right? And so more and more and more, our young people are being exposed earlier and earlier. And there might also be instances of abuse within a family. So a lot of times people might have had like early sexual play with a sibling or with a cousin or something like that. They don't really think it was abuse, but it was something that was more advanced than like sort of normal childhood exploration. And, and so sometimes it takes some more probing and, and this is why using therapists is really important because they can get to those things. And then those lead to some trauma factors. Um, the, the one I'd highlight is trauma repetition. So when people have a traumatic event happen to them, it just comes up again for them. And they kind of recreate it again and again, or their body remembers it. So for instance, I was in an accident in 2006. I drove a Ford Ranger, which has a really light back end, right? I was in cruise control in the winter on the interstate, and I hit ice and I kind of spun around, rolled my truck, wasn't hurt, thank God. But the next time I drove on the interstate, my hands were shaking like crazy, right? Because my body remembers what happened. So with a lot of people, when they're struggling with pornography, it's because they saw something when they were young, then that gets stuck in their head and their brain's trying to figure out what happened and they go back to it over and over and over and over again. So those things can all exist. And then there's some catalytic environment or catalytic stress. And that can be like the death of a parent or something else that happens in their life. And this kind of addiction pops out. Right, so sometimes somebody might have had a problem through adolescence. Then they got better. And they had a couple of years of good continence. And then their mom dies. And then when their mom dies, they're sort of back into things again. Right, and so. <clears throat> And then that leads to different kinds of behaviors, other addiction, addiction, interaction, et cetera. Right? And so, so the causes have to do with those areas in our life that are about our affective maturity right? and being able to be in healthy, open relationships. And so a privation of love, is, it, is a family system rigid or disengaged? Is there emotional, physical, sexual abuse, neglect? 
absence of education, and affective maturity, or early exposure to pornography. Most of the people I've worked with who are in a healing process, they had two factors. One was early exposure to pornography, and the second was that there was like zero education in human sexuality. Like not even sort of you're gonna hit puberty, and so I'm gonna talk to you and explain that to you. And a lot of times that's the result of our desire to protect the innocence of young people, which is a good desire, right? It's a good desire. And, but in our effort to protect them, they don't end up with any information, and then, it, and then they find it really difficult to, to talk about things as they come up, just as they come up, because we're growing up. And I'm gonna share some resources that might help with that. And so most of the things I talked about that are in the beginning, that are like those causes, most of those things are not our fault. Right? I've never met anybody with a pornography problem who wasn't shown pornography by another. You know, older people, there was like a magazine in the woods because like the woods used to have magazines in them. <laughs> right? That's just where you find, you go to the woods. Now we keep the woods in our pocket. It's called a cell phone, right? And so, so now it's way more, it's, it's more frequent. But we were always shown it by another, or it was the negligence of a, some family member's stash or something like that. You know, there's nobody who just kind of spontaneously went and found it because they wanted it. You know, it's always something that came as a surprise. So, so that means in the beginning it wasn't their fault. Right? In the beginning, it wasn't their fault. And sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our heads around that. Because when we get older, we think, like, it's always been my fault. But the first time, it wasn't your fault. You know, and there's room to have mercy about that first time. You know, everyone I've ever talked to was once a 10, 11, or 12-year-old who was once shown pornography by another, or they were sexualized by another. And I often use John chapter 8 <clears throat> as kind of a model or as a prayer assignment. You know, because the woman caught in adultery, so she's, she's caught in the very act of committing adultery. Like, how did she get there? Um, she's probably a prostitute. How did she become a prostitute? Maybe like most people become prostitutes. Maybe she was abandoned when she was younger, or her parents died, or she was raped and she was no longer worthy of real marriage or real family life or she felt unworthy of real marriage or real family life. She came to believe that the only value she has is her body, and the best she can do is go from man to man to man to man selling her body just to take care of her basic needs. <clears throat> she probably hates her life. I wouldn't be surprised if sometimes she goes to bed at night wishing that she could die. And then one day all these men barge in and they catch her in the very act of committing adultery. And they pull her out in the street and they throw her down in front of Jesus and this big crowd of men gathers around. And they say, Master, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? And our Lord just bends down and writes in the sand. Right? And there's lots of commentaries on what our Lord wrote. But as I, as I pray through this myself, the, the, what I'd see is more that our Lord was placing himself within her gaze. Because if I was that woman, I'd be looking at the ground, completely exposed. This crowd's around her, they're all looking at her, they're all thinking the things about her that she already believes about herself. 
And so our Lord bends down to write in the ground to place himself within her gaze. And maybe they make eye contact for a second and she looks away. And then our Lord stands up and he says, whoever among you has no sin can cast the first stone. And he returns to the ground. And he places himself back within her gaze. And this time I imagine her noticing how our Lord looks at her. That everybody else is looking at her body. They're confirming what she already believes about herself. But our Lord is looking into her eyes. And he's looking at her with love. And then I imagine the crowd noticing this. How does Jesus look at her like that? I keep looking at her body. I keep thinking about what she just got done doing. I want to kill her because she's an occasion of sin for me. But our Lord is looking into her with love. And Jesus also said, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And they start dropping their stones. Until it's just Jesus and the woman. And then our Lord stands and looks at her and says, woman, has no one condemned you? And she answers, no one, sir. And the no one, sir, includes herself. Right? The no one, sir, includes herself. Somewhere in the midst of the look of love, she starts to see herself the way that our Lord sees her instead of the way the crowd sees her. And then he can say to her, go and sin no more. And where does she go? She just goes after Jesus. And she goes to the Pharisee's house and washes her feet with her tears. And she's there at the crucifixion. She's the first to discover the empty tomb. She's transformed by love. You know, she's transformed by love. And in, in the spiritual life, everyone who is stuck in some kind of sexual sin needs to be transformed by love, transformed by our Lord's love. And oftentimes going back to praying with that first exposure is a place that we find the beginning of healing. Right? It doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities, right? So I always say it wasn't your fault, but it's your responsibility. Right? And our responsibility means I'm, I have to do whatever it takes for me to be free. And so, so what can we do for people who are stuck in these kind of behaviors? So there are various interventions to assist and strengthen the conversion process, right? And then prevention through education. So this slide's gonna show all of the things that are possible to help somebody who has a problem with pornography. Right, so there's a bunch of people, and they, they're struggling, and they're going to confession. And I believe that some people are healed in confession. I've talked to people who, like, they had a problem when they were younger, and maybe, like, they, went to, they were really being vigilant about confessing well. Right, confessing well means number and kind. It also means that I give up the confessor circuit. Right, The confessor circuit is when somebody has a problem, they go to a different priest every single week because they don't want any of the priests to know that they're doing it every week. Right? They're valid confessions, but there's something about hiding in that. Right? There's something that's motivated by fear in that. So they're going to go to a consistent confessor and confess their sins well, and they get better. But then there are others who they seem to just stay stuck. And so the next thing we do is we put filtering and accountability software on all our devices. So there's lots of different filters out there. Um, like sometimes I've heard people say this, like, Father, I don't want to use filters. That's a crutch. I just want to be virtuous. I'm like, is it more virtuous to have pornography but not watch it? 
or to not have pornography. Right? It's more virtuous to not have pornography. Like you don't take an alcoholic and say, put a bottle of Jim Beam in your kitchen and just say no to it every day. <laughs> right? We don't say that. Right? But if we have cell phones that are unfiltered, we have a bottle of Jim Beam in our pocket every day. Right? So using filters just means I'm going to put doors. I also say I put doors in my stores. Right? When we were growing up, we had doors in our stores. We went to the video store and there was a door and it said, you must be 18 to enter. Right. Our kids today are growing up with no doors. They can be on Disney website, Amazon, wherever, and then they can be down this dark road, <laughs> even though if they were in a public store, it would be illegal. So filtering and accountability. Say they have that, but they're still struggling. They're playing beat the filter all day. Right? Beat the filter is the game you play where you're trying to get around the filter. Right? Like I'm trying to protect everybody else in the school by figuring out how to get around the filter. You know, these are the things, the lies we tell ourselves. Um, entering into a spiritual direction relationship where I'm going to meet with a spiritual director regularly. I'm going to disclose my life to this person. I'm going to ask him to help me to grow in the genuine devotion, right? to help me to grow in my identity as an adopted son of the Father. But sometimes even there, like I'm, if you're still struggling, because I used to think that was all there was, then I might go to a group. <clears throat> right? There's different kinds of groups. Um, I really recommend 12-step fellowships because somebody can go to a 12-step group, and there's somebody in the room who used to have their problem that has been free for 20 years. Right? That's been free for 20 years. And chastity requires an apprenticeship. Right? It requires an apprenticeship, which means somebody's going to enter into our life. They're going to walk with us, and they're going to share with us what's worked for them, and they're going to help us to move that forward. Right? That's all that happens at a 12-step group. Um, then there's individual therapy and finding a therapist who has a lot of training in dealing with sexual addiction or compulsive sexual behaviors. There are therapists out there who have had thousands of clients, and you can be sure that if you go in, they've seen somebody else with your problem, and they know the path forward. I've had a lot of very good success referring people to therapists who are trained in sexual addiction treatment. And those therapists, even when they're not Catholic, they're really good at helping people to live a congruent life and an integral life according to our own standards for what that looks like from a moral perspective. Those therapists sometimes run therapy groups. There's intensive outpatient therapy, which is where somebody might go to therapy three days a week. There's intensives, which are weekend experiences. So there's one here in Kansas City that's Catholic-based um, called the My House Workshop for Men. And it's like a Thursday, a Friday, a Saturday. I'm on the team with three other therapists. And guys come in, and it really is helpful to get them started in their recovery process. Or it can be helpful if somebody's stuck and they really go through their whole life and start to understand better like where these behaviors kind of were born in their life. And then inpatient treatment. Right? And so, so as we're walking with somebody or if somebody's struggling, I always sort of as, as their spiritual director, um, I just start bumping them down this funnel until we find the thing that's going to be helpful for them. Right? And, and some, I have had people say things to me like, well, Father, if I need to go to a 12-step group or if I need to go to a counselor, there must be something wrong with my faith. Right? There's nothing wrong with your faith. 
if somebody has trauma and they were abused when they were younger, they need a trauma expert. If somebody has like problems regulating their emotions, like they can't tolerate emotions like grief or anger or sadness, they need somebody to help them with that. And counselors are just people who are smart about those things. Right? And they can be really helpful. And there's a huge movement of humility in our hearts when we admit that we need something like that. Kind of the big three things are spiritual direction, counseling, and some kind of a group. So I want to kind of share with you, this was the fruit of one of my meditations on my retreat this year was um, I started to, I was praying through the Beatitudes and, uh, <laughs> and as I was praying through the Beatitudes, I was like, wow, I hunger and thirst for righteousness better than anyone. <laughs> but I'm not very poor in spirit. <laughs> and guess what? If I hunger and thirst for righteousness, but I'm not poor in spirit, I become self-righteous. And so when we talk about 12 steps, there's an order to the 12 steps. You have to do them in order. And, and I thought to myself, well, what if you have to do the Beatitudes in order? And they correspond. Right, so blessed are the poor in spirit. The first step in a 12-step group is we admitted we were powerless over lust and our lives had become unmanageable. Right? I admit my poverty. I admit that I have to be completely dependent on God, that I cannot do this by myself, that the only path forward is the genuine devotion. Blessed are those who mourn. Once I admit that, I have to mourn. I have to grieve things like I'm not, I can't do this on my own. And I have an attachment to doing everything on my own. So I have to grieve the fact that I can't do this on my own. I have to grieve the loss of whatever behavior I'm giving up. I gave up drinking six months ago. And like at lunch today, I was mourning. Because <laughs> there was wine at lunch. And I'm like there's some grief in that. It's not like it's the end of the world. I was just like, oh, it would be really nice to have a glass of wine. Right? So there is mourning involved when we recognize our powerlessness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So I'm going to humble myself and allow somebody to guide me. And in the 12 steps, I believe that a power greater than me can restore me to sanity, and I make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. Some people don't like that language, but just it's up to everybody. The, the way you understand God is the way you understand God. You know, the way I understand God is that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and established a church. Somebody else in the group might believe something else. My, my strategy is to send enough Catholics to 12-step groups that they all become Catholic, <laughs> right? Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So now, once I've turned my life over to God, then I become hungry and thirsty for righteousness. So I make a fearless and searching moral inventory of my life, and I look at all of my character defects, right? Because I want to make my life right. I admit to God, to myself, and to another human being the exact nature of those wrongs. And a lot of people do that in a general confession. I'm entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and I humbly ask him to remove those shortcomings. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Because in that process, I'm receiving mercy. Then comes blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Right? Then comes blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And oftentimes, we're seeking purity of heart without being poor in spirit. And so we lack the genuine devotion. Then blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. I make a list of all the people I've harmed, and I'm willing to make amends to them all. And then I make direct amends to all those people wherever possible. 
except when to do so would injure them or others. I become a peacemaker. And when I'm being a peacemaker, I might be persecuted for the sake of righteousness because people don't like the fact that I'm going to make amends and they have an opportunity to tell me how bad I've hurt them. Right? And, then the, and then the rest is just being living the Christian life. I continue to take that personal inventory, and when I'm wrong, I promptly admit it. I seek through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understand him. And then as I've had a spiritual awakening, awakening I become an evangelizer of others, and I carry the message forward. So, so my point is that like 12-step recovery works. And when I send somebody to a 12-step group, they get better. And if there's any like anxiety, well, that's not Christian or something like that, it follows like the order of the Beatitudes. There's just not like a Beatitudes group. Maybe we should make a Beatitudes group. <laughs> then people would know we're talking about addictions. <laughs> Keep going to the anonymous one, right? Um, so, so there's an order, right? There's an order. There's an order to the spiritual life. There's an order to the recovery process. And it's okay to engage in that, right? It's okay to engage in that. Um, I'm almost out of time. So this is a spiritual plan. I call it a complete spiritual plan. This is just another tool. And this is something parents can do with their children if they find out their children are struggling. It's something that priests can do with their directees if they're struggling. And I would think of it as my, this is a spiritual plan of life that's really specific about near occasions of sin. So. So it basically works like you put three circles on a piece of paper. In the center circle, you put all the behaviors you need to stop doing. So I'm, I'm going to stop pornography, masturbation, cruising on social media for pictures, strip, whatever it is. And then in the yellow circle, I put all the things that I need to have in place so I don't end up in the center. So that's like my near occasions of sin circle. So there I'm going to put things like, if I'm on social media for more than 20 minutes, I'm probably going to zone out. So I can't do that having an accidental exposure without checking it in. So for people who have struggled with addiction, because they're bruised fruit, if they see something like small in a movie, it might start preoccupation in their head. And they have to have somebody in their life that they can call and say, oh, I saw something, and now I'm thinking about it. I just need to talk about it. And it dissipates that. Right? It dissipates that. Having the phone in bedroom, negative contact with family without checking it in. Like sometimes our families are triggers. It just happens. Sometimes our families are triggers. Like sometimes if somebody, say when they were a kid, their parents were always fighting. When their parents were fighting, they would act out. Well, like if mom calls them on the phone and she starts telling about the fight with dad, he's going to like be thinking about acting out. Right. Um, celebrity photos on social media, whatever it might be. And then in the outer circle, these are positive things I need to do in order to live a healthy life. So that's where I have you know, daily mass, counseling, spiritual direction, three phone calls. Probably should be three phone calls a day. Weekly confession, covenant eyes, spiritual support group, 12-step meetings. You know, and those are things that help me to live a good life as a human. They're just things we need to do as a human. Biggest remedy is call three people a day and really connect with them. Father, like on the phone? <laughs> I don't know how to make a phone call. That's the most anxiety, like ridden prescription that I, I give. You know, but making phone calls works. And we start to live like a human because humans talk to each other. So prevention through education, um, 
so one of the questions is always going to be what's age appropriate in today's world, right? If it's true that the average age of exposure is between eight and 11, what's age appropriate? Because most of the 19 year olds that I meet with will tell me this, like, father, I was, I started that behavior when I was around fifth grade, and then I learned it was a mortal sin when I was in 11th grade. And I was like, what? Mortal sin? It's a mortal sin? Why didn't anybody tell me it was a mortal, right? Because we were trying to protect their innocence. But the behavior had already started. So, <clears throat> so this is what some families are doing. Right? Using filtering software like Covenant Eyes, MobiSip, uh, Disney Circle is another one. There's different kinds of filtering. But having conversations with your children, because chastity requires an apprenticeship. So there's a couple of resources that I'm going to share with you that some people I know use. They think they're really good. I would encourage you to check them out and you decide if you want to use them or when you want to use them. Um, one of them is this book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. Right? It's a book that helps parents to talk to their children about what pornography is and what to do if you see it. Because what we want is them to report if they get exposed so that you know about it and you can help them through that. The best thing to say to a kid who just was exposed to pornography is, I'm sorry that happened to you, right? because it wasn't his fault. Um, and so this book kind of defines pornography as pictures of people with little or no clothes on. If you see it, close your eyes, alert an adult, name it when you see it, like that's pornography or that's a bad picture, distract your thoughts with other things, order your thinking brain to be in charge, right? And so it talks about your thinking brain and your feeling brain, which is equivalent to like your intellect and your passions, right? And your intellect's in charge. And I'm going to like move in this direction. It gives them a language if they get exposed. So they're not like, what was that? And getting stuck in repeating the behavior. A lot of times people will ask, well, if you teach them about it, aren't they going to want to do it? Um, the only analogy I have is smoking. And this is the smokingest conference I've ever been to, which means there's like 10 smokers, right? I smoke. So. So one time I was at a party with a bunch of families and they have all these kids, there's like 30 kids and it was 4th of July and I was smoking. And I went and bought a bunch of fireworks because I was stressed out. So I showed up with like $300 worth of fireworks. <laughs> and this kid was following me around like, Father, where'd you get all those fireworks? Father, can I help with your fireworks? Father, Father, why do you smoke? Uh, you know that's bad for you. Like, Shut up, kid. <laughs> you know you could die. And I'm like frozen while this three-year-old's raking me over the coals. And then he looks at me and he goes, oh, well, guess you're just going to die then. Right? So point being, if we can teach a three-year-old cigarettes will kill you and he thinks they're actually going to make him combust, we can also teach them. There's this thing called pornography. It's pictures of people with little or no clothes on. It causes your feeling brain to get out of control or it causes your passions to rebel against your intellect. And if you see it, you need to close your eyes, run away, and tell your mom, right? Or tell your dad, right? And, and it just gives them a strategy, right? It gives them a strategy. There's another book. It's called Wonderfully Made Babies. There's, there's lots of tools out there for education about human sexuality or how babies are made. I really like this one. Uh, Archbishop Chaput from Philadelphia gave it an imprimatur. It's a read-to-your-child book. So most of us don't have a model. 
right? We don't have a model for raising kids in a world where there's pornography and hypersexualization and there's things going on. Nobody's ever raised kids in a world like this. These things have always existed, but never in the way they exist now. So, so this is a read to your child book. It gives you a script, right? And it helps you to say like all the right words. So parents who read this book and it's recommended for nine and up, right? Nine because before puberty hits, um, it's just information. They just learn like biologically, that's how a baby's made. Oh, okay. The most common question a child asks after being read this book is, can I go play with my toys now? It's the most common question. And when they ask more detailed questions, they're never the ones you're afraid of. My friend's wife read it to his daughter. His daughter's walking around like, Dad, do you know I have millions of eggs? I have millions of eggs inside of me. She just learned like how babies made. I have millions of eggs, right? That's what she's fascinated about. So, um, so we don't have to be afraid of those things, right? And having continuing conversations because chastity requires an apprenticeship. Right? And there's, there's some different models for that. My friend says it's a race between parents, peers, and the internet. And whoever talks first is trustworthy. So if the first thing a child learns is from the neighbor kid, then the neighbor kid's the one they're gonna ask all their questions to. Right? If the first one who talks is mom and dad, they're always gonna go back to mom and dad. Now my friends are experimenters, they're like pioneers, but their daughters just got into high school. And now that they're in high school, they're figuring out that there's some pleasure component involved in their sexual maturity, and the first person they went to was mom. That's perfect, right? That's perfect. Because they don't want them to go to the internet or to go to other people, right? And so those are some, some kind of tools. Like, what if my kid's already older and they're too old for those books? Um, this is kind of a script that I give to parents. Is The first thing is to have an amnesty day. When I was a West Point cadet, we had amnesty day. It was like a general came, and if you had punishment, all your punishment was taken away. So amnesty day means we're gonna talk about whatever you tell me in this one hour conversation is you're not gonna get punished. I just wanna know what's going on in your life. And then you might ask like, when was the first time you saw pornography? Well, I've never seen pornography. Well, father gave that talk and he said the average age was like between eight and 11. How'd you avoid it? Like, how'd you stay away from it all this time? And, and maybe they have a really great explanation, and if they do, I wanna know. Um, like, my friend said that to his son, and then his son said, well, I've seen it. And then he found out it was two years earlier, and now they have continual conversations as they're working forward, and when he said that, he said, I'm sorry, I should have done a better job filtering the internet, I'm gonna do better, I need your phone, I need your computer, I'm gonna put software on everything right now, and I'm gonna give it back to you, and we're gonna do better from now on. And I'm gonna check up on you from time to time to make sure that things are better going forward. You know, but there is hope. There's hope for things to get better. There's, there's a family that they give a talk for me. And uh, like when I met them, she came in and wanted permission to never touch her husband ever again. They'd been married 27 years. And, uh, and when I asked her about what was wrong, she said pornography. And then I started to learn more about her life, and she had had like lots of other stuff in her life. Like there was trauma in her history, there was all kinds of stuff that she'd never really gotten help for. And I was like, let's just put your marriage on a shelf and just focus on your own healing right now. Because healing happens according to that order. It happens like daughter, then marriage, then motherhood, son, then marriage, then fatherhood. 
And so we start working on that. As she gets focused on her own healing process, guess what? She stopped being like being mean to her husband. And then her husband like was like, wait, I have more space in my life. And then he started being nice to her. And he came in and got help. And they kind of naturally fell back in love with each other. And in that healing process, there was a lot of mutual disclosure. They learned things about each other's lives that they had never known. And, uh, and now they're working on healing all of their kids because they really hated each other for a long time. They looked good. They have eight kids. Their oldest daughter is a nun. They're like very prominent in their faith community. And, uh, and now, but now they're really in love. You know, their daughter had never seen her mom and dad sit together at mass in her lifetime. She was seven. So mom and dad started sitting together at mass and then daughter gets mad because dad's in her spot. <laughs> so she's throwing tantrums. Two weeks later, she walks in she's like, mom and dad have to sit by each other. Puts mom and dad together, crawls up in between them, grabs mom's hand, puts it on dad's hand, pats their hand, big smile on her face. Everything's good. And she gets to grow up with two parents who love each other. And I'm like, I just did eight marriage preps, <laughs> right? Because the most important marriage prep is what you get in your family, right? It's what you get in your family. And, um, and so I am out of time. Um, I was going to tell one more story, but I'm out of time. Uh, it's been a real joy to be with you all. And, uh, and it is like the biggest joy in my life is it's not talking about all the dark stuff. It's talking about those good things, right? And facilitating those good things in our own lives, in our own communities. You know, and, and I just encourage you to, to continue having conversations with each other, getting advice, and, uh, and thinking about what can you do, right, to help your kids grow up in a safer place, um, but also to be a support to anybody who's struggling. You know, the person next to you might be struggling. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we ask your blessing upon all of these, your sons and daughters, and ask you to bring healing to just any memories or any experiences that may have come to mind today. Help us to entrust our hearts to you completely, to live the genuine devotion. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the SSPX podcast. For more information about the Angelus Press Conference for Catholic Tradition, you can visit angeluspress.org slash 2019 and be notified when all of the conference audio will be available for download. For more information, visit sspxpodcast.com or visit the U.S. District website at sspx.org. Until next time, thank you for listening and God bless you.